All right. Well, if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. All right. Well, I title my message, Making Known the Unknown God. And our focus tonight will be verses uh, 16 through 34, but I will read the chapter because I'd like uh, for us to look at some context here. Um, And again, in the previous chapter, Paul had been in Philippi, a city named after Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. He caused quite a stir there by freeing a fortune-telling slave girl from a spirit of divination. Her handlers, being upset over the loss, dragged Paul and Silas to the authorities and charged them with teaching customs contrary to the Roman way of life. They were beaten, they were imprisoned, and while in jail, an earthquake occurs. And while in jail, as he's there, the earthquake occurs, the the jailer panics, presuming that all the prisoners have escaped. And so what he's done is he's prepared to take his own life. And there's Paul. He screams out to him. He says, hey, 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 there's no need for that. Put your sword away. We're here. And Paul could have easily said there and just sat there and said nothing. Nobody would have been the wiser. The jailer would have been dead and they could have left. But Paul knows that wherever he goes, there's opportunity. And it's by divine appointment. And being found in prison was no different for him. Apparently, the jailer must have been observing Paul. He must have been looking at him and and hearing him and hearing his message. And the jailer comes to this place. And I think in a moment of time, he realizes he's been spared. And it's no coincidence that Paul must have been so impressionable that he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's response, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved, you and your household. And through this one event, the jailer's life and his whole household came to faith. Could have been dead. But Paul is keenly aware that wherever he goes, it's by divine appointment. Maybe you're having a difficult time tonight. Maybe you're in a difficult position and you're ready to pull a sword. And the Lord is telling you, put the sword away. There's still time. Or if you're living for Christ, you're going to discover, as we're going to look at the next chapter here in verse or chapter 17, that God will use you wherever you're at. As a matter of fact, He intends to use your life to share the good news of the gospel if you're living for Him. And so Paul has left Philippi. He hits the Ignatian Way. He travels about 68 miles west to Thessalonica. And brings our journey here to Acts 17. Let me read the first nine verses here. Here's Paul in Thessalonica. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead 
and saying, this Jesus whom I preached to you is the Christ. Now, again, you can go to Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1 and you get the cross reference there that Paul, in fact, was in Thessalonica for three weeks. And that was it. That was it. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few, that means a lot, of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, and note that, it wasn't nothing to do with the argumentation. Had nothing to do with truth. They were envious. Took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to, to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here. And you're right. The world is upside down. Paul is trying to bring it right side up because that's what the gospel does. It brings light. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, a heteros, another king, another of a different kind, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason, probably some deposit that they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't cause an uproar. They would be quiet. So when they took security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So you can see here, here's Paul in Thessalonica and trouble seems to follow him. And there were the Jews. They were envious. So Paul has to has to leave. Now we see Paul and Berea in verses 10 through 15. He says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded or noble, as the Scripture says, than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. What an admirable trait for these Bereans. You know, I tell my kids, there's nothing wrong with being critical. But there's something wrong with having a critical spirit. And these men were noble. They were fair-minded. They were different than the Jews in Thessalonica. They at least were willing to hear and search the Scriptures. Those men were envious. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, and they departed. Evidently, the Jews who pursued Paul in Thessalonica, heard Paul was now 50 miles away in Berea. And they travel 50 miles to get him. They go out of their way 50 miles. Now, how do they know he was in Berea? It's not like they have TV or telephones or emails. How did they know? And by the way, a 50 mile journey is quite a different journey today. Today we can get our car, travel 50 miles, and be there in 30 minutes, depending on how you drive, right? 
That journey would have taken several days. What would compel you to go down there? 50 miles away. How do they know? Someone once said that Satan himself has his own missionaries. Then we're told Silas and Timothy are left in Berea and Paul sets out for Athens. Athens is 250 miles southwest of Berea. A three-day journey by boat, a 12-day journey by land. And Paul goes with an unspecified group of people that travel with him. And I'm sure they're, they're, they're committed. They want to make sure he gets there safely. And he sets for sail for Athens. And folks, it's not a pleasure cruise. He's not eating the all-you-can-eat buffet or drinking the free alcohol. This is different. It's not a pleasure cruise. He's on the run. But he's, he also knows that the Lord is the one who opens the doors. And so here, Paul arrives in Athens and he goes it alone. And it started to make me think, what was that like for Paul? Growing up influenced by the Greek culture. Growing up in Tarsus, a Greek city heavily influenced by Athens. As a matter of fact, most of the civilized cities in that day, and even in our day, have been influenced by the Greeks. Think about it. Law, government, science, medicine, ethics, parliament. And I'm sure Paul was familiar with all the great thinkers. It is said that five of the most eminent teachers of Stoicism taught there at the University of Tarsus, where Paul grew up. And it's no wonder. You know, Paul's mother being a Jew and his father being a Greek. Furthermore, Paul continued his education in Jerusalem at the school of Gamaliel. He had the best of both worlds. He understood both the Jewish and Greek culture. And I don't think Paul knew at the time, but God had already been preparing him. This man was no intellectual slouch. So he arrives in Athens, as it were. And what a remarkable sight it must have been for Paul. Never been to Athens. And he's heard all the stories about Athens. And as he makes the turn and the boat lands, and he looks... And set before him is this city rising up from the coast with all its architecture and its decadence. So here we are. Paul's in Athens. And, and Paul, we're going to see Paul's purpose for preaching here in verse 16. It says, now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Paul arrives in Athens already in a state of decline, as well as Rome was. And Corinth had been conquered by Rome in 146 B.C., signaling Rome's occupation. However, Athens always sought to free herself from the bonds of Rome. So what does she do? She aligns herself with King Pontus around 88 B.C. She made a mistake. She was on the wrong side. Sulla arrives with his troops into Athens and destroys a major part of the city. Rome wins again. 
Even though the Romans subjugated Athens, it was still declared a free city since she continued to be a major influence to the Roman way of life. Philo, the Jew, declared that the Athenians were the keenness of intellect and added that Athens was, a, was, to, the, was to Greece what the pupil is to the eye or reason is to the soul. The city boasted of the arts, literature, history, science, geography, and philosophy. Think about this. God even used the Greek language to compile the scriptures we possess. Its rich language is unparalleled to no other. And God used it. By many accounts, Athens was still the university city for the Romans to go to. She still maintained a reputation as a hub for enlightenment and education. You can read the accounts. Pisinius, for example. Everyone's depiction of, or account of Athens in that day stood in awe of the magnificence of the city. Horace, Brodus, Cassius. And yet, here's this Christian, Paul. And this apostle is not impressed by what he sees. He's repulsed. And I could just imagine Paul passing through the gates of Athens. He would have seen the statue of Demeter, the goddess, with her daughter. Further on, he would have passed the statue of Poseidon, wielding his trident. And beyond this, he would have seen the statues of Apollos, Zeus, Athena, and Hermes, standing near the sanctuary of Dionysius. And upon entering the Acropolis, he would have passed two statues of the horsemen facing each other on the opposite sides of the road. And on his right, on the western edge of the Acropolis, was the temple of Victoria Athena, the so-called wingless victory. Paul would have looked towards the sea in the bay there of Farallon and would have seen the grain ships of Alexandria. It was a bustling city. It was still quite a metropolis, but it was on its decline. And there was also the most famous and beautiful of all Greek temples, the Parthenon. His eyes would have seen Athena, the most oldest and venerated statue in Greece. Truly, the city was full of idols, the very thing the Bible warns us against. What were the first two commandments? Let me remind you. Exodus 20, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. And certainly, Athens embodied the very thing God warned about. There was an ancient proverb. You may have heard it. There are more gods in Athens than there were men. And no doubt, wherever the apostle looked, in the niches, in the corners, on pedestals, and temples, on street corners, were gods and demigods. Busts of Hermes were found on every corner. It is said that on every street in front of every house was a post, and on that post you had a statue of your favorite idol. Statues and altars were in every courtyard of every home. You say, wow, idols everywhere. 
Folks, we're no different today. You know, we look at these people, we think, oh, those people, they're, they're ancient. You know, they, they weren't that bright. They were the hub of enlightenment. But we're no different today. Think about that. We think we're, again, above all that. But what do most Americans have in their home? What do they have inside their house? A television set, right? It has one eye. Of course, unless you have picture in picture. Uh, it speaks. It'll play whatever you want it to play in any language you want. And you can call on it anytime you want. Just turn it on, turn it off. Turn it on, turn it off. And how much time is given over to it? But you know what um, that television can do? Like the gods of Athens, it can't have a relationship with you. That's the difference. All those gods, all those idols that Paul refers to cannot and will not have a relationship with you. And for many of us, we treat God like he's a big genie in the sky or the big man upstairs. Folks, this was Athens. And here, Paul's spirit, we are told, is provoked as he saw the city was given over to idols. Now, the phrase given over to idols actually means full of idols. Athens boasted of a population of a quarter million people. It also boasted of having 3,000 temples of worship. In and around Athens were over 30,000 statues of idols. And I'm sure as Paul is looking at the lay of the land and all the people navigating in and around the sea of idolatry, his heart was grieved. The scripture says his spirit was provoked. And that's an interesting word in the Greek. That word is uh, proxeno. And the, the idea carries this, this sense of sharpening, being agitated to stir. And, and, and it is in the sense of stirring up contention. And it's here it's being used of being provoked. And, and also, the only other place that this word is used in the New Testament is in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, where it says love is not easily provoked. Here is the other side of the spectrum. He is being provoked. He's being stirred up because he sees all the idolatry. He's being stimulated to rage. And again, I think Paul's being stirred up because he sees people who may be sincere in their worship, but they've been deceived and they're lost. And he's angered and he's agitated. And listen, I don't think he's angry at the people. He's angry at something else, or rather someone else, and that's Satan, because they've been brought into bondage. That is what he's angry with. What a great lesson for us. When we see people who worship other things, we shouldn't be angry at them. They're in bondage. They're, they're in bondage to a system. You see, Paul understood that built in, in us is a great need for God. And as Paul looked around at all the temples and all the idols, it only demonstrated man's desire to worship. But they were being ripped off spiritually. He knew that man could have a relationship with the true and living God, and his spirit was being provoked within him. His, his heart was being stirred. And because of that, it tells us in the next verse, Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, 
and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. Interesting how Paul went straight to the synagogue in the marketplaces to reason with them. We're not told of the outcome from those meetings, whether they were successful or not. But what we do see is his strategy. He hit the synagogue and the marketplace, the agora, as it were, daily. And he reasoned with them daily. And they were hearing him. And no doubt those conversations were intense. So much so that the Epicureans and Stoics come in the scene shortly. Word is going out. Something new is happening. Paul, again, is stirring things up. Let's look at Paul's audience here in the next verse. It says here, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached them Jesus and the resurrection. Notice the group here. Epicureans and Stoics. His first interactions were, the, were with the common people. And now he encounters the philosophers, the thinkers of Athens, the Epicureans and the Stoics. This is a very interesting group of people. And I decided to spend some time studying them. And they're pretty interesting. They're several hundred years old each in their philosophy. Um, Epicurus is over 300 years earlier. And he argued that one should weigh belief in proportion to empirical evidence and logic. In ethics, he believed pleasure is the only intrinsic value. For Epicurus, the most pleasant life is one where we abstain from unnecessary desires and achieve an inner tranquility by being content with the simple things and by choosing uh, the pleasures of philosophical conversation with friends rather than the pursuit of physical pleasures like food, drink, and sex. The problem is, and all of us, I think, can agree with the simplicity of life, tranquility. Nothing wrong with that. But by the time Paul came around, it had changed dramatically. It no longer meant the simple things of life, of one enjoying lounging around their garden, as it were. It happened to to mean the full pursuit of pleasure at one's discretion. It was a pursuit of sexual fulfillment. It was a pursuit of drunkenness. It was a pursuit of what your little mind can conjure up. It was hedonism on steroids. It had become corrupt. Zeno, the founder of the Stoics, you've heard the phrase, you know, so-and-so is Stoic. Um, what they were saying is their facial expression lacked emotion. They were reserved. The Stoics were the pantheists in the sense that they believed that God was in everything. He was in the plants. He was in the trees. He was in everything material as we know it. However, he was a God who didn't interfere with the affairs of man. So the Stoic couldn't look to God, but rather to the inner qualities of man. So his pursuit was virtue. Now, Epicurus stated the highest pursuit of man is pleasure. And the Stoics under Zeno stated that the highest pursuit of man was virtue. And the way you do that is how you interact with the world around you and how you respond to that world. For example, if you got married, you know, most of us would be excited and happy. 
You put a stern face. You didn't show any emotion. Your house has got broken into and you're robbed. You're a stoic. You didn't show any emotion because you were trying to maintain the higher virtue. And for some folks, the standard was set so high that many of the Stoics were committing suicide. As a matter of fact, there are two prominent Stoics in, in Paul's day that committed suicide. And this is the, prom, uh, the problem when you have a fatalist worldview. When you feel like there isn't a God that can help you. It reminds me of these kids who go to Caltech. You know, Caltech is one of the two toughest schools to go to in our country. And it's the most, one of the most challenging schools you can go to today. Only the sharpest kids from all over the world attend there. They are the brightest minds when it comes to the sciences. Yet, do you know that they have one of the highest suicide rates in the country? And they're just right down the street, right here in Pasadena. Why? Why? Because the bar is set so high, they can't keep it. And when they begin to fail, there's no outlet. They're hopeless. Because they've been indoctrinated to think that there is no God. There's no one outside themselves. So they end up taking their life. No, maybe you're here this evening and you, walk, you walked in thinking to yourself, what are they going to say? What is their message? I mean, how are they really going to change my mind? Folks, our situation is no different to that of Athens. Personally, I think we have more to give an account for since we have more. We have history witnessing against us. Man hasn't learned. He is the same from the beginning, and he will never change apart from Christ. And God sets before us this portrait of a man in the midst of these Epicurean and Stoics. And they say, ha, what does this babbler have to say? What is, he, what is he saying? He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Because why? He preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Interesting to note that the word here, uh, they call him a babbler, is the word spermologos. Spermologos. And the sperm meaning seed, logos, to collect. It's only used here one time. One time. And what they're saying is, the word carries this idea, excuse me, of a bird picking up seed. That's the imagery. And what they're saying is Paul is like this bird. He's flying around picking up seed of thought. All these ideas. He's going around picking up all these ideas and he's making them his own. What they were saying was he was a parasitic plagiarist. And that his message has no validity because he, didn't con- he conjured this up all by himself. So this message has no merit. Also, interesting to note, is they accused him of being a proclaimer of false gods. The word is demonion. It occurs 59 times in the New Testament. And it refers to the underworld, to demons, to devils. And the only other time, it's in reference to deity. And what they're saying is he's proclaiming something demonic. And here they are. The Epicureans and Stoics accusing the greatest mind in the New Testament of being a seed picker, a babbler. That tells me something. We're not to feel bad when you go share Christ with your family or co-workers or your friends. Don't feel bad if they call you names. You're in good company. You're in good company. And we'll talk about the resurrection in a little bit 
when Paul addresses the crowd in Mars Hill. Notice verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Notice here, the language indicates they didn't take him by force, but rather they invited him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus is otherwise known as Mars Hill. Again, interesting history regarding the Areopagus. It was at least 600 years old by the time of Paul. The Greeks believed this hill belonged to Mars. And as the story goes, Mars had slain the son of Neptune for attempting to violate his daughter and was trying to, and he was being tried for murder before the 12 gods or the 12 magistrates. And by the time Paul came on the scene, it had become a place where judges convened for capital offenses. Now, Paul wasn't brought here to be judged for some offense. He was brought here to be heard by the people. And some of the greatest uh, thinkers stood on the same ground. Socrates gave his defense here. And other philosophers and all the crowds here have gathered here. And here's Paul standing, as it were, an ambassador for Christ, pouring out his heart to the people. That they would respond to the gospel. And again, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says here in verse 21, for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Some new thing. And they accused Paul of being the very thing that they were. They were the seed pickers. They're talking about the pot calling the kettle black. Listen, they had no technology. They didn't have television or the internet. So folks would gather around Mars Hill as one of their forms of entertainment. It was entertaining for them to hear the new, the latest, greatest thing. That's how they spent their time. And it just shows us something that man has a need is not to miss out on the latest and greatest. They want to be in the experience. They don't want to miss the experience. It kind of reminds me of Tony. Uh, he shared recently in one of his studies how he and his son were watching a basketball game. And there was, you know, a great shot. And his, his son turns around and he says, did you see that? Did you see that? And he goes, yeah, I saw it. I'm right here. And, and But if you think about it, that's us, isn't it? When there's, the, there's something new, we want to know. We don't want to miss it. How many of us go around during the week? Did you see this? Did you hear that? We do the same thing. Except these people convened here on Mars Hill where all the greats would meet. And they were there to hear them speak. They were there awaiting to hear something new, some new philosophy. And here in verses 22 through 23, we're going to see Paul's introduction to the Athenians. He says here, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Now, again, listen. Paul doesn't come out with a guns a-blazing. 
He doesn't marginalize the way they think. He tries to find common ground by which he can reason with them. He quoted their own poets in verse 28. Now, again, here's a word of caution. There are churches out there that take this chapter as proof or proof text where we can be relevant in how we share the gospel. In other words, we're to look and sound like the world and then we'll be accepted. And there are, there are churches that do that. We need to go out and entertain the church. We need to copy the model of the world. Otherwise, they won't come. And we have worship leaders dressing like the world and sounding like the world in order to be relevant. There, there are church uh, worship leaders who say, let's look at this artist and let's emulate their music and bring it into the church. Paul didn't relativize the gospel. He didn't change the language. He didn't say, God wants you to be happy, as I've heard some pastors teach. Paul knew nothing of that, nor did he sacrifice truth in order to make the gospel more palatable. He was going to talk to them about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's going to talk about their sin and their need of repentance. The fact that there's a judgment day coming and they need to make a decision regarding Christ. Folks, you don't want to mess with the message. It's God's message to a world that is lost in sin. They need a full dose of truth. Otherwise, we cheat them. Because they haven't heard the truth. Not all of it. And Paul does it in a way where he uses those things only to shed light to the things he is sharing. Paul was effective here because his spirit was provoked. Provoked over the idolatry and philosophies they were in bondage to. And no doubt he is speaking from the heart as he begins to share the love of God to these Athenians. The love of God. Something they weren't familiar with. They were caught up with their philosophies, their education. What does the scripture say? Knowledge puffs up. Notice Paul's observation that he perceives that they are very religious. Some translations like the King James Version says, well, we perceive that or I perceive that you're superstitious. I don't agree with that. I I agree with this translation that they are religious. That's the proper translation. And what Paul is going to say here is, you know, as I was walking around the city, I, I couldn't help but notice how religious you are, how you surround yourselves, with all these idols. In fact, I even saw an altar with this inscription, the one to the unknown God. You know, you're so cognizant of the spiritual that you're even afraid to miss that one. So you erect an altar just for that one God. And guess what? That's the one I want to talk to you about. And so he says, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now, he doesn't say you're a bunch of loons. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't sabotage himself that way. He's opening the way into their hearts. They have an admiration for divinity, as he would say. He says here, For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Notice what they said earlier of him. He is a proclaimer of foreign gods, 
foreign devils, demons. Here, Paul refers to one of their own altars made to the unknown God. Agnostos Theos, unknown God. Theos, singular, the one true living God. He says, it is a God that you worship ignorantly. And he uses the same verbiage set forth in verse 18. How they accused him of proclaiming a foreign God. He's saying, no, 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 no. What I'm setting before you, what I was really saying is, I'm declaring to you the one God. The one that you overlooked. The unknown God. The one and true living God. And you know what? We shouldn't be ashamed to declare that to the world. Many of us go, that's not my job. I can't do that. You should not be ashamed to declare to them the one true living God. Our God is the God of the Bible. Here he is saying, I'm setting before you the unknown Theos singular God. Not many gods. And let me tell you who he is. And I'm sure as he's speaking forth, he's got a captive audience. Now, notice the backdrop here. In verse 24, he says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Again, imagine the backdrop. He's saying these things, and, and, and what's in front of him? What's behind him? What's around him? All these temples. He says, God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. All the idols, the Parthenon. And he says, let me tell you, this is the unknown God. He is the creator of everything. The heavens, the earth, the universe as we know it. And he doesn't live in those buildings that are behind me. He doesn't. And I can imagine that there was many people there who lived a life disappointed with the God that they worshipped, the God that they venerated, that they prayed to, and there was nothing happening. And they're disappointed. And they're tired. But they know there's a God. But they might be wrong. And this guy here, what he's sharing, he just might be right. Could you imagine? You, I'm sure if you've come out from a different religion, you were frustrated. You are living in darkness. And here's this man shedding light to the, to the place where they were at. A place full of idols. Paul, in one statement, obliterated the falsehood of all those temples. Furthermore, verse 25, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives, life to, he gives to all life, breath, and all things. After Paul just destro- destroyed their misconceptions regarding temples, He says, all of your offerings, all your sacrifices, they're not needed. God doesn't need anything from you. He made everything. And He doesn't need anything seeing that He gives life. He gives breath. He is the giver of life. Now listen, practically for us, the believer, this is an important verse because there are those out there, churches, that tell you that they need X amount of dollars by the end of the month or the ministries in peril of shutting down. Good. Shut the doors. God is the giver of life. Think about that. If God wants to shut the ministry, let Him shut the ministry. He is the giver of life. He doesn't need anything. God is a giver of life. Paul says he doesn't need anything. Now, the Bible tells us that we ought to give 
but we're to give in a way where we're not being coerced or manipulated to give. Second Corinthians 9, 7 says, So let each one of us gives as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. No coercion. You're not to be manipulated. He doesn't want you to sit under a ministry where you're manipulated to give. If you send some ministry beginning to manipulate you, do yourself a favor. Leave. You know, before uh, Pastor Chuck died, he says, you know, wherever God guides, he provides. That's a truism. Wherever God guides, he provides. And there are many today who have forgotten that lesson. Paul says he doesn't need anything. He created everything. What does he need that you can provide? Nothing. Nothing. And he has made, verse 26, from one blood, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Take note what Paul is saying. Why? Because the Athenians believed that they were the superior race. They were the superior culture. For example, they believed if you didn't speak Greek, you were a barbarian, the lowest of lows. No, we're not talking about MMA, okay? You're talking about a barbarian, the lowest of lows. Read some of the history of Greece. It won't take you long to see how they viewed themselves in relation to the whole world. Paul dissects their view of temple worship, and he says it's, false, it's a false worship. He dissected their view of many gods and how they had a wrong understanding of who God was. And now he dissects their view of superiority over everyone else in the world. And this line of thinking has been a problem since Athens. Darwin, the father of theory of evolution, theorized that there would be a day where the stronger races would eliminate the weaker ones. He observed in his descent of man, let me quote, The civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. Think about that statement. Only the strong survive. It's no wonder why Karl Marx, Hitler, Thomas Huxley adored Darwinian evolution. Hitler considered Jews to be subhuman and the Aryans were supermen, which, by the way, we know led to the extermination of six million Jews. Karl Marx, the father of communism, esteemed Darwin so much that he wanted to devote a good portion of his book, Das Kapital, to Darwin. Now you may sit here and say, well, you know what? I don't believe all that stuff. I mean, I just believe in evolution, man. Come on. I don't believe what those guys believe. Well, let me tell you, they may have not intended to believe that in the beginning, but look where it led them. The Bible says here in verse 26 that God has made from one blood every nation of men. In Genesis, we're told that God created us in His image. Folks, every one of us in this sanctuary is related. We all descended from the same parents, Adam and Eve. Whether you're black, white, brown, yellow, green, it doesn't matter. We're all related. That's why I have a problem with Black Lives Matter, this whole business. It bothers me. It bothers me because we're all related. 
Paul is saying to the Athenians and to us as well that God has made us from one blood every nation of men. We're all related. Some of us wish we weren't related, but we're related. I recently read a church marquee and it said, In the Bible there is no black or white church. Jesus didn't come to save skin. He came to save souls. I like that. Came to save souls. There's no such thing as a superior race. That's a fallacy. Because if that were true, who determines it? Who determines whether you're fit to live? I'll tell you who determines that. Evil men. Evil men. And has determined, again verse 26, their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of all their dwellings. God knows the rise and fall of all the nations. God knows the destiny of the United States. And one of the important things for us to see here is we look at Paul in Athens. And he's not intent on returning Athens to its former glory. Paul's burden was to save Athenians. Looking at the world we live in and how soon Christ may come, our challenge today is not to see America restored to its greatness in which the founding fathers projected. The burden is to save those who are lost. Our objective is not to save California or the United States. It's to save people. People are lost. Our country is filled with people that God loves. And don't get me wrong, I love this nation. I love our nation. We're not even 300 years old and we're already on a decline. The one thing I know to be true is God's word. And we're right on time and we're right where we're supposed to be in history. And we would be wise to follow Paul's example in seeing men and our nation saved in the name of Christ. Verse 27 Notice, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. This again was totally foreign to the philosophers, since they thought that God was in everything, or He didn't involve Himself in the affairs of men. And Paul was saying that that God set these things in order that we might begin searching for Him, that we might grope for Him. And the, the language, the way the language reads here, it implies that here you are. You're reaching out your hands, you're extending yourself, and you're groping, you're hoping to feel. And that's what the word is, to feel, to grope, that you would look for God. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate here, that we would reach for God. Now, I like what Xavier said recently in one of the studies. He said, you know, um, a child has no problem believing there is a God. You have to indoctrinate them to believe in there isn't one. And that's true. You know, um, I recently had a friend who saw, we saw a video through a mutual friend uh, online. And the, it looked like over 100 kids in this school were praying before the day began. And they were praying that God would bless their day. And he posted, he goes, I find this offensive. I don't see how the school can continue this. If I was a parent, I'd go down and, and complain. And by the way, my, my child doesn't believe in God. Where do you think that child learned that? You see, God created us, and He created us to know Him. You had to indoctrinate your child. That child didn't come to that place on her own. You indoctrinated that child. Psalm 8.3 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, 
the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Matthew one twenty three. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Translated, God with us. God walking among us. John 20, verse 25, speaking of Thomas, the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. And so he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And what was Thomas's reply? My Lord and my God. God with us. God in the flesh. Again, a foreign concept to the Athenians that God would actually be a man. Hey, as believers, that blows our mind. And for them, that was unheard of. He says, for in him, verse 28, we live and move and have our being as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Now he quotes two of their own poets. Epimenides is credited with saying, for in him we live and move and have our being. And Aratus is credited with saying, we are his offspring. Interesting that Epimenides wrote about 600 years before this encounter. And Aratus was 300 years prior. Look, what Paul is trying to say is, I'm trying to tie in what your own poets wrote hundreds of years ago. All I'm trying to make known to you is I'm trying to shed some light. What even your own poets have said, they're talking about this unknown God. That's what I'm, I'm trying to allude to. They understood that. He's trying to make known to them through their own sources who God was. He's making God known. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Again, the point Paul is trying to make is it's foolishness for us to create objects of worship when we're, we're in fact created in His image. And he's saying, if that's true, then it's ridiculous to make idols out of gold, out of silver, out of stone. And Paul is carefully dissecting all that they believed and venerated for hundreds of years. And then he says in verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Paul is saying, God is giving you a break here, guys. He's giving you a little grace. You've been living in ignorance for a long time. Long time. And he understands that. He's going to overlook your previous condition of ignorance. However, now that you've been told the truth of God, he is now requiring all men everywhere to repent. You can no longer plead ignorance. I've told you the truth. You cannot say, I don't know. Isn't it interesting that one of the first arguments uh, non-believers make against God Or his justice is, well, what about the guy who lives on a deserted island? Or the guy who lives in the bush? He's never heard of God. 
Well, listen, God uses creation and conscience to bear witness. Read Romans. But Paul is saying is you were ignorant, but not anymore. You've been given the truth. Everyone everywhere must repent. They have to make a choice and they must repent because judgment is coming. There is a day of judgment coming. Verse 31, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Paul is pointing out that they must repent because judgment is coming. Mankind is not moving towards total annihilation as the Epicureans thought, nor towards being absorbed by the universe as the Stoics supposed. But mankind is moving towards a divine judgment. More importantly, that judge is a resurrected man, the man Christ Jesus. The idea of a resurrection among the Athenians was not readily accepted. Escalaeus, 500 years earlier, wrote, When the dust has soaked up the blood of a man who's died, and once he is dead, there is no resurrection. This was a popular phrase in Paul's day. The idea of a resurrection was not an accepted idea. Similarly, folks in our day recoil at the thought of a resurrection. Everything is fine if we're talking about a baseline. okay, And everything below that baseline is theoretical. But the moment you go above the baseline and require a man or woman to make a decision for Christ, or you know it's getting close to a place where they have to decide, suddenly things become awkward and uncomfortable, don't they? Because what do you do with the resurrected man who claims to be God? You get three reactions. Some will mock, some will delay, and some will believe. But the resurrection is evidence of God's approval and also of our future. Notice verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. And so Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. They believed. Among them was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Paul's message had three reactions. Now, I have a strange suspicion that Paul divulged more than what we see set before us. Some mocked, ah, the seat picker. Again with these ideas. And he walked away. Then you had some that were uh, going to uh, procrastinate. Eh, you know what? We'll hear you again at a later time. Which is a quaint way of dodging the elephant in the room. Yet as Paul leaves the hill, so to speak, there were those who came to faith. Dionysius, the Ephrogite, and Damaris, the woman. Apparently, there were others who came to faith, but these were the two that were prominent among the group. Now, this message should give us great hope. Paul, in my estimation, is the greatest New Testament writer. Yet God, by divine appointment, sends this Jew to Athens, the hub of Greek culture, with all the philosophers and all the Greek decadence, and he makes his case on the same floor where many Greek notables stood before him. And only a few people came to faith. Only a few. 
We look at Peter and how many got saved? 3,000. How many do we have here? We don't even know. We see two people and others. How many are there? You don't read of Paul complaining to the Lord, why only a handful got saved, Lord? We don't read him saying, why did you send me here? I thought you at least would have sent me to a place where we know a bunch of people would be saved and be open, right? Heck, I could have sent Timothy and Silas if it's just going to be like five people. We don't read that. Sadly, many pastors would have seen this as a failure. But not to God. Why? People still got saved. People still got saved. And that's what matters. If you gauge your success by numbers, you've got it all wrong. If God knew only one person was going to be saved, and that person was you, I assure you, He would have sent His Son just for you. Or, He would at least send a messenger to show the Gospel to you. Because He's faithful. He would have sent someone. All God is interested in is our availability and our obedience. Because some might mock, some might procrastinate, but some might believe. Think about those people who got saved. Put yourself in their place. Think about those who got saved that day and heard that message. God sent a messenger to travel several hundred miles under great difficulty because he loved them. Man wouldn't do that, but God would. God would. Again, maybe you're here tonight. Maybe some of these things are making sense to you. Or, you know, this guy's, I, I, what, am I, what am I doing in church? Why am I sitting here? How did I find myself sitting here? But all this makes sense. Because it's the God of the Bible that's called you here. And nothing's an accident. He's called you here to be saved if you're not. Paul earlier said, what must you do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. God doesn't need anything from you. He just wants to come into your life and save you. With that, let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you for this passage. And Lord, your desire to save man. In Athens, in America, in Europe, it makes no difference to you, Lord. And your desire is, is Lord, to enter a relationship with those who are lost. And if you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord, I'm not going to call you up here. Your decision has to be made in the heart, wherever you're at. And if this is something you want to do, I can say a prayer. And all you have to do is repeat what I say. And it's a prayer of faith. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I want to accept your son as my savior. And that you would guide me all the days of my life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.